Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman, and today's episode was such a treat for me. I just got to have a conversation with someone who is an old, old, dear friend and colleague. We were in graduate school together. She was the rock star of our program at Columbia University. Her name is Professor Anna Johnson. She's a provost distinguished professor of psychology at Georgetown University. She's a hybrid scholar with dual degrees in developmental psychology and public policy. In addition to being an esteemed professor, Anna is also the principal investigator of a multi-million dollar seven-year longitudinal study of low-income children. Anna's primary research focuses on the effects of publicly funded early care and educational experiences in low-income children's development. She also is a professor of Psych 101 with freshmen at Georgetown. Her breadth of knowledge is out of control. So I wanted to initially have a conversation with her in response to a study that came out that got a lot of people's attention that was about universal pre-K having negative or neutral outcomes for a cohort of state-funded programs in Tennessee, which somehow in the news was translated to universal pre-K is now not considered good. I really just thought, oh, this is when we need science to get translated properly so that people don't make terrible mistakes about it. So we are going to talk about the merits of pre-K, of course, but we also are going to talk about when you are looking at studies or articles about studies, how do we consume science and how can we help to consume science even better? I also want to remind everybody to please sign up for my premium bulletin on dreliza.bulletin.com. If you sign up by May 1st, I'm doing a one month weekly introduction to mindfulness for everyday parenting. I'm so excited about it. It's an hour a week for four weeks and it's just going to be a small group and we will have lots of time to interact and it's $4.99 for that month. And there's actually a free trial available. So it's probably even just free and I'll get more access to you and so looking forward to it. You are one of the most important researchers in the field and nobody knows who you are in the like, you know, <laughs> in the parenting community because yeah. why would they know this? You're elevated in this super academic position, important for policymakers, but then there's a whole world of people that should know your work. 
but you don't want to be the person because you're so true to your work. You don't want to be the person to say, I've got all the answers. I've solved all the problems. Whereas there are people that are much less qualified than you shouting uh, the answers out to the world without anybody questioning them. And that to me is so unfortunate. And it's, it's the same with policy. And I, ta- I teach a policy seminar and I tell my students, you know, how research like developmental science and public policy are like, they should be so much more overlapping in the Venn diagram, but they're so disparate in terms of like the messaging because policymakers are trained and exist in a world of like, go or no go. Like I just need to fund the program or don't fund the program. The right. program works, the program doesn't work. It's black and white, it's up or down. I need to know I've got 15 minutes of floor debate. I've got X number of people who are going to vote on the thing. I can have room for a one pager. It's small bits of information, super clear. And either it's a yes or it's a no. That's how votes work. They're binary, right? And I think with research, it's anything but. And we exist in a place of like closer to a critical p-value or like, you know, the sample wasn't large enough, but if we replicate it, we might find the thing. And it's like, that's really unsatisfying. And it's like, every research paper ends with, we need more research. And every policy debate ends with that legislation is going to die or not. You know, and it's like, it's just, it's so different. And I think this is the same way. Like, I don't know, there's a lot of, I mean, I can't solve that problem, but But I'm frustrated by it. We can't solve that, but we can start to share, like figure out how to, like it took me years to not apologize for what I do. When I see you, because we were in the same, I guess I'll have to give the, the intro to this. Yeah. Training program. Training, that we were in the same training yeah. program, but went yeah. in vastly different directions. And, but when I first was doing it, remember I was sort of say with shame, like I want to translate the research for mm-hmm. real world and yep. for parents and, and healthcare in healthcare settings. And it just sounds so at the time it sounded so like beneath the training Mm -hmm. instead of feeling like there is actually an important value in making sure that the research gets translated in different settings. And we Mm -hmm. can't, we're we're all doing different things, but there's also extraordinary value in researchers that have so much integrity that they're, that they're not making bigger claims than they should. And that they're really driving the field. That is what you are and training people in the future to do the same, but I still think there's space for you in a setting like this on this podcast where you're not, it's not a peer reviewed journal. You're not Mm -hmm. getting, you know, there aren't policy votes that are happening because of what you're saying, but really you have interesting opinions based on all of your knowledge that you should put out there just to the everyday person who would want the, the, you know, if, if I have access to this great mind, I want to know what you really think. I'm so lucky to know who those researchers are. That's the only thing that I can 100% offer is the difference between who actually knows what they're talking about and who's pretending to know what they're talking about. Yeah. And I really want everybody to have access to people like you. That just feels very important to me there was a study that came out sort of suggesting, and please correct me if I'm, if I'm explaining this and I'm making it too simple, but basically suggesting that maybe universal pre-K isn't as good as we thought it was. And maybe there, there aren't the great benefits of pre-K and people kind of panicked because that was not exciting to hear. And because there's one headline, it was really hard for people to be able to know or say, wait a second, 
just because that is what you're getting from this paper doesn't mean that there aren't a tremendous amount of pieces that are not being discussed that are going to be a huge factor in why that might be may or may not be true. And that's where I think you can come in to really explain and unpack that. And it's not that the minutia matters so much that it's just more like, how can we learn using this example? Because I do think it's important to talk about pre-K and the benefits and what's going wrong and all of that. But also some somehow having a language for how are we reading articles that use research to make huge sweeping statements that aren't most likely are never what you're getting in the newspaper. So I would start by saying like at the at the broadest, like unrelated to pre-K, I think we have to think about like how people digest news, right? So like that's actually just a psychological phenomenon that has nothing to do with developmental psychology or parenting psychology or anything, which is just like the idea that we have like a negativity bias and we're like you know, we're little supercomputers constantly scanning the horizon for like interesting factoids. Like that's evolutionarily how our brains have developed. And like, we have this availability bias, right? And so we remember dramatic things more than we remember everyday things. And you would think about like a celebrity, like if a celebrity does something, you know, distasteful, like that's much more memorable than the million small acts of kindness that that person might be doing, right? You just don't hear about that as much. So like pre-K research or any research, it's still different. So there have been something like 25 rigorous evaluations of public pre-K programs that find positive effects of public pre-K. There has been one (laughs) that finds these negative effects. It's in Tennessee. And I know the people who wrote the paper, they're really good scholars. They're super careful. There's nothing to criticize about the, the study, the science itself. In Tennessee, program analyzed in this manner suggests that kids who attended pre-K by sixth grade like aren't doing any better than kids who didn't attend pre-K. And in fact, on some indicators like social, you know, suspensions and social behavioral stuff in school might actually be doing worse. There's a million reasons why that might be. We're not going to get into the minutiae to your point. I think it's really important to acknowledge, number one, that like negative news sticks. And number two, programs of any kind, whether that's pre-K or not, like just very widely. Like if you ask someone on the street, would you rather live in Tennessee, Maryland, or Massachusetts? You will get, you know, a horrified look in response to one of those states, a pleasant (laughs) smile in response to another. Why? Because, and, and it could be any different state to any different person, right? Like people have very strong feelings about states why? Because we believe they are dramatically different and idiosyncratic. And that is no different for pre-K, right? Why would, would you rather live in Maryland or Tennessee? I bet you give me a million reasons why you'd rather live in one than the other. And it probably has to do with a lot of stuff like culture and politics and ideology and food and transit system and environmentalism and proximity to the waterfront. I have no idea. <laughs> States vary in every dimension and pre-K is no different. States are like little mini, you know, places. Like they, they do their things their own way. So Tennessee pre-K is Tennessee pre-K and a Tennessee pre-K study says nothing about anything other than Tennessee pre-K. All right. So having said that, a great study done by excellent researchers, you know, what does this tell us about like how we consume science and, you know, how results from one article color people's feelings about a really important topic? <sighs> I don't know. I mean, I think it, I think it, I think that the way science moves forward is via replication. And we have to ask the same question on different 
populations in different geographic locations at different times in history, using different subgroups of individuals, using different data and you know statistical methods. We have to do science over and over and over again because only if you see something happen over and over and over again can you have a sense that there's an actual trend or effect as opposed to like some you know noisy accident. And so I think that while it's important to consider newsworthy papers, like you said, you know, something that makes a splash for some reason and think critically about why that might be, it's also important to keep asking the same questions and to not say, well, we've, we've done that already. That's not how science works. Like we don't talk about proving something. We talk about like rejecting the null hypothesis. That's our language. So that's a perfect example. Can you translate rejecting the null hypothesis and why we're not trying to prove something. By the way, this is making me have PTSD from Your qualifying I'm not, exam. I'm not going to say the name of the professor exactly. No, no, no. But, but yeah. your qualifying statistical and methods exam from your PhD training program that I knew you when you sat for. Yes. Yes, yes exactly. But <laughs> will you explain it? Because I think that really understanding what you just said is is a gift. You know, I think it's really important to think about like the 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 language and the methods of this kind of science, the kind of developmental science that, you know, parents, and I'm a parent, and you're a parent, and most of the people who listen to your podcast are parents, you know, the kind of science that parents are looking for comes from a tradition of research where we are looking to find a statistically significant effect that rises to some, you know, prescribed level. And what you judge as a meaningful effect in science, in that type of science, is something that looks like a pattern not due to chance. A pattern not due to chance (laughs) is, I'm really like picking this apart because I really don't think people know this. This is so in the weeds, but it's kind of important (laughs) because understanding that we're just trying to see, was it chance? Was it just a totally arbitrary thing that happened? Or is there any bit that maybe happened for another reason? (laughs) That is the bar, right? That's very different than we just proved something. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly what I would say. You know, we are not proving, I mean, it's, it's again, to borrow from another domain of psychology, confirmation bias, that's social psychology, right? That's not, that's not developmental psychology or parenting science, but just the idea that like, as again, as a human species, we are looking to prove the thing we already thought we knew, not to disprove a hypothesis. It's just not the way we're wired evolutionarily. Like it's much more comfortable as like brains are pattern detectors. You know, we're scanning the horizon for like safe and familiar things. It's a lot easier to find the thing you thought you were looking for and be like, oh good, exactly as I expected. Doesn't that feel nice? Then it is to look for something that is contrary to what you expect, right? And so I think, you know, the way that we look at these kinds of research papers that you're talking about and interpret research information as it applies to parenting is flipping the script in how we as humans look for confirming information. Like the way science works is, huh, isn't that interesting? Not, I proved it. Like Eureka. <laughs> we don't say that. That's not what, that's not what, what the kind of statistical tests we use are telling you. Now we're going to take a little break so that I can tell you about my sponsors. Lots of people talking about fake spring and how difficult it is to dress around this time. 
But that's because it is. It's very difficult to find the right outfit in the spring when every day is different and weather can change at the drop of a hat. Luckily, Faraday makes it easier. They make the perfect clothes for all seasons. Faraday is a family-run brand making high-quality, timeless clothing with a modern design and functionality. And it's the kind of effortless style that you want every time you go digging in your closet. You get that shirt, that dress that feels like you've had them for years. It's not trendy. It's just classic easy. It looks like it might even be vintage, but it fits really well. And it was made just yesterday. And Faraday is so confident in the quality of their stuff that they have a lifetime guarantee of quality. They'll replace or fix your clothes forever, no matter what. Isn't that kind of incredibly generous? I thought that was very cool. And right now, Faraday is giving all of my Raising Good Humans podcast listeners 20% off. So head to faradaybrand.com slash humans and use the code humans at checkout to get 20% off all your new spring staples. That's code humans at Faraday, F-A-H-E-R-T-Y brand.com slash humans for 20% off. Faradaybrand.com slash humans for 20% off. Another sponsor is so cute. It's Skylight Frames. And it's so cute because if you are not able to visit family or friends, or they live far away, or you live in Los Angeles, where even when you're nearby, there's so much traffic you can't get to people. This is a touchscreen photo frame you can email photos to, and they appear in seconds so your mom can see your favorite moments. I'm definitely setting up a skylight frame for my mom. So she gets to feel like there's real-time opportunities to see what we're doing. And it's so cute. And it helps you just feel like you're staying in touch even when you can't make a phone call. And we have learned that keeping in touch is more important than ever. And you can use these Skylight digital photo frames to make it easy. You can either email photos or just upload them from the app anytime from anywhere. And truly, it just goes right away to the person you got this present for. It's so simple. Even my non-tech savvy parents are going to be able to set it up and by non-tech savvy parents, I also mean even I can set it up. So now you can get $10 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com and enter the code HUMANS. That's right. To get $10 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame, just go to skylightframe.com and enter the code HUMANS. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E.com and use the code HUMANS. I do think that there is value to saying, okay, there have been a number of studies that have suggested certain things to be true. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say, we can say that sensitive caregiving benefits children. Just like we can say that public pre-K benefits benefits children's children's school readiness and early school success. There is no question about that. Just like sensitive parenting is definitely better than harsh and insensitive parenting. Right. So there are some things that we could just say, this is true. There have been enough studies. You, the pre-K example, 25 studies to one study. You, You have to be able to say that raises a question on quality. That raises a question on how we're making, how we're measuring things, but it does not now make us think pre-K is not on balance better than not. Right. 
sensitive caregiving, we can say in, in too many studies have we seen that it is better. So I feel comfortable translating and not getting into the weeds about why it's better or any right. of the- But that's because there's a preponderance of literature. Imagine it was 32 years what? ago right. and there were two studies. That you're still in the place of, I need to ask more questions, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And so what 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 I'm hearing is as parents, as we're consuming this information, just figuring out, okay, has this been done many, many times? Then I'm going to start to develop a trust and and feel good about that. Has it been said one or two times? Well, maybe I'll ask some more questions, but I'm not going to turn it into my head's going to spin around and I'm going to freak out because this statement was made in the science as proof. Mm-hmm. And that is very helpful because mm-hmm. then you're not operating in fear you're operating with curiosity. And we all make better decisions when we do that. And we all make better decisions when we do that. (laughs) So given all of that, what would you say is important? I mean, first, let's just cover the pre-K benefits because I think it's important to just unpack that particular issue since we brought it up. And second, I think the way you translate anything or talk about anything is brilliant. It doesn't really matter. You could talk about hair removal. I love talking about her. Um, You're who I go to if I'm thinking, you know what? I'm looking at this literature. I can't quite figure out where I land because it's a little bit so, you mentioned the slice. Like I do Mm -hmm. feel like people don't understand that we're just trying to put together all these tiny pieces of a pie to, you know, and so one new source of information gives you one slice of a pie, but it's not the whole picture. But I do feel like when I am trying to get the whole picture or make a decision, given the information that's out there, you're a person that I would go to, to say, okay, but then tell me what you think, given the information that we have, what Mm -hmm. do you think? And what I'm hearing you say in this example is pre-K is a good thing. Mm -hmm. State-funded pre-K in Tennessee isn't a good thing based on this study. This one study suggests, one study. And, and it's a, it's a very well done longitudinal study. So I, I believe what they found that in that cohort of kids who attended preschool that year in Tennessee, the preschool didn't, didn't really give them a lot of benefits by the time they were in sixth grade. But if somebody is going to translate that to, you should ask more questions would you translate it to, you should ask more questions if you are doing state-funded universal pre-K in Tennessee? Or would you say, if you're doing, in general, pre-K, you should start questioning its value? Oh, no. not. I don't think we need to question the value of pre-K at all. Right. So we have this just enormous body of evidence. You know, it's one of the things that I would say that early childhood, you know, developmental psychologists who study education agree on most confidently is that the short-term benefits of public pre-K are positive. That's it. I mean, we're not asking that question anymore. I don't think. Yeah. So, and I think that study, because of the way newspapers maybe translated it, made people think we were still asking that question. We're not. Right. 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 We're not. I think you have to think about, you know, without going into too much uninteresting detail, I think we have to think about short, what do we expect, right? Mm -hmm. Pre-K is one year of education. It is like any other year of education, you know, 8.30 to 3 p.m. And it's off during the summer. So we're talking about nine months of the year for a kid who's four and a half or five years old. 
what do we expect pre-K to do? I mean, you don't get one MMR vaccine and expect to be inoculated for the rest of your natural life. You don't get one tetanus shot and then never worry when you step on a rusty nail 30 years later. Like no inoculation lasts forever. Things need boosters. Hello, we're seeing that right now, right? Yeah. So pre-K is not a one-shot success story. You can give a kid pre-K and you you should expect to see that kid, particularly if they're from a household with low income, that kid is going to benefit in the short term from that pre-K experience. And there are at least 20 studies that show that, 25 at my last count. The short-term effects, that is the immediate payoff of pre-K exposure, particularly for kids from under-resourced backgrounds, is going to be very positive on their language, their literacy, their math, their social behavioral skills. Do those positive effects sustain through middle school in every state that offers a deeply idiosyncratic and state-specific version of pre-K? No, they do not. Those effects do not sustain everywhere they have ever been detected in the first place, in part because the benefits of any first shot wear off, in part because some states do it badly, in part because there's a lot of other factors at play. You know, two months maybe after the study that we were talking about earlier came out, a study, a long-term effect of Tulsa pre-K on kids' high school skills came out. I was not involved in the study, and it's very positive. Kids who attended pre-K in 2005 had more higher GPAs and took more honors and AP classes in high school than kids who didn't attend pre-K. No one's talking about that. I don't know why, because we like negative news. That is so true. And it's so sad. No one's talking about that. That should have blown up just like the other article did. Exactly. So for every case of this, you've got 10 cases of the other. There are many explanations for why we are drawn to the Negative. Negative news. But, you know, I feel there is no question in the field that the short-term effects of pre-K are positive, particularly for the kids who are least likely to be able to access it if it weren't public. You also brought up, like, long-term effects versus short-term effects and expectations. And I think that that's also just another thing to think about is not everything needs to be in the service of the long-term effect. Like, there also has to be some value, I think, in the shorter term effects, right? Because it gives you, it buys you a little more time to cook and do better and support your kids. I mean, I just, I think now you're, that's a philosophical question. And like, I think you're exactly, I think that's a really important question. What you just said is really important. And I would apply this to other areas of research, like food insecurity, for instance, Mm -hmm. and nutrition. Like, do we feel like it would, the burden of proof for, you know, whether or not we should increase the value of food stamps so that kids can have three full meals a day, that that burden of proof rests on whether the kids who get three full meals a day have better test scores in eighth grade. Like, I feel like the burden of proof should just be kids shouldn't be hungry. Period. Because I don't like to be hungry. I'm unpleasant to be around when I'm hungry and I don't do my best work when I'm hungry, neither do kids. Yeah. Nobody, nobody wants you hungry and nobody wants a child hungry. And the burden of proof, I mean, I've always also had like, I'm like, how are we, I think we used to talk about this. Like, why are we still needing funding for certain studies? Like there, it should go without saying that there are certain things that kids deserve 
and we don't need to keep spending millions of dollars proving and we don't actually prove it because that's not how the science right. works. Supporting but, the yeah. evidence base and this yeah. thing that like parenting, sensitive parents. Yeah. I mean, I, do we really want to withhold, you know, home visiting components from early Head Start programs because we don't have quite enough evidence that home visiting really tips the scale? It's like, but would it ever be a bad idea to support a struggling right. young parent? Is, when, when is it a bad idea? It costs when money. is it a bad idea? Correct. It costs and it, money and we do not have endless funds to support domestic policy in this country. I get that. But like, it really, are we ever going to regret that we helped a young new parent do the best quality interaction with her new alien human who just landed in her home? Like, I feel like we're not going to regret that as a society. Yeah. And I so, don't think we're going to regret providing preschool access to kids who otherwise wouldn't be able to access preschool and parents don't have to do it. It's not compulsory. It's an option and it should be for everybody. And now a word for my sponsor. One of my favorite things is coffee. That is legitimately a great joy in life for me. And if you love iced coffee or cold brew, listen up. How does cold brew on tap sound to you? Because Wandering Bear is the best cold brew you can get without leaving your house. They make really smooth, rich, chocolatey tasting cold brew. They put it in a really cool box with a tap like boxed wine and the box keeps it fresh and makes it convenient so that you can fill your cup up in the morning. And then it feels like you had a little fancy coffee shop in your refrigerator and it's 100% organic, super strong and extra smooth. And it's so cute. You can smile every time you open the fridge and see a bear staring back at you. They also have other flavors straight black, vanilla, caramel, mocha, hazelnut, even decaf. So you can find your favorite flavor, drink and repeat. And because it's all organic, sugar-free and dairy-free, there's really no downside. It's just delicious. And they even have a subscription so that you don't run out of coffee. And I just like the convenience of all of that. So to get 20% off your order with the code HUMANS, go to wanderingbear.com. Again, that's 20% off your order with the code HUMANS at wanderingbear.com. Again, that's 20% off your order with the code HUMANS at wanderingbear.com. It's springtime. There's so much to do. It's the perfect time for exploring the world, feeling a little bit of energy and you can really nurture natural curiosity with projects that are designed to teach kids about everything from rainbows to rocket ships. KiwiCo delivers monthly science and art projects that spark a love for lifelong learning for kids of all ages. And you can help kids discover the mechanics behind everyday objects, the science of cooking, geography, customs from new cultures, brand new art techniques, all through these fun hands-on projects. And here's the thing. I am such a fan of open free play and exploration, except there are times as a busy parent where you really want to have something for your kids to do. You don't want to turn on the TV. You can't really sit with them and do a project, or you might want to sit with them and do a project, but you don't have the energy to get all the materials together and figure it out. And in those moments, it is so awesome to have KiwiCo. They just kind of have an activity in a box. And it's fun and it's easy and you can just relax a little bit, which you very much deserve. So 
Step into spring and celebrate this season of discovery with a KiwiCo subscription and get 30% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with the code HUMANS, H-U-M-A-N-S at KiwiCo.com. That's 30% off your first month at KiwiCo.com with the promo code HUMANS. The whole reason why I'm so interested in parenting is because I think you can only control yourself, right? You totally. can't control anybody else. And so if, and I'm not saying you can control other parents, but if each parent can take on some burden of that control mm-hmm. because they're given the resources to do so, then that is like the most powerful environmental impact on hands down. Development. And okay. I agree with you. It's really hard to change people. And also if people are motivated to change because par- the, you know, transition to parenthood is the biggest brain growth after early childhood and adolescence because of the motivation for change, because you're like, it's like the highest likelihood you're going to quit smoking or drinking or doesn't mean you will, but you have a better shot at it at that point. Mm -hmm. So if parents can change themselves, which again is so hard, but, but because they can change themselves, but they can't necessarily change any of the other circumstances they're in, including school and administration and all of that. That's the whole reason why I find it so heartening and hopeful. But I can see the other side no, of it. But, is you've com- like- but you've changed. I mean, I think this is why what you're doing is so important. This, I'm not kidding. This moment post, you know, lockdown when we had very few opportunities to access sources of parenting advice. Like I think what you and your kind of peers have done, which is make complex parenting information accessible via a free platform, but also accessible via translating the research into like lay terms. I think it's so important. And you've actually turned me around. I'm not kidding. Like in the last year and a half, I'm like, oh, this is more malleable than I thought. Like I gave up on parents a long time ago. I'm going to work in the schools because I don't think you can change parents. But I'm like, well, if it's messaged well and people can access the information, actually, you can act on that information. Like, I think that's exactly right. I'm not kidding. I really, I've had a, it's not going to change what I do research wise. And I think that the parenting demographic you're talking about is a demographic that has Again, like basic needs must be met, right? So like... Period, yeah. So if you're struggling with other stuff, are you going to take that moment of brain growth and malleability and turn your laser energy reserves on like, how can I better my parenting practices? Or are you going to like hustle to take care of the things you need to take care of? Like probably that. But I, I think you're right. So for, for parents who are just trying to raise good humans, I think that, you know, that is the, that's the, that's the time. That's the moment, like becoming a parent, trying to, you know, just doing your best to provide the things that, you know, you can provide for your kid and you have to know your kid well. So the more you can tailor your response, probably the better, right? Not all kids are going to benefit from PK. I mean, 150 years ago, when we talked about sort of like what matters and what doesn't matter, you were maybe feeling like for kids who have those basics met, those needs met, you weren't super worried about them, right? Your purpose, thankfully, to the world is that you're trying to figure out how to make kids who don't have access and kids who are vulnerable have a better trajectory, like Mm -hmm. live better and have resources. Right. That's been your life's work. 
Yeah. But in doing so, do you feel like you used to feel, I think that everything was like gravy for everyone else. Do you still feel like in general, that stuff is gravy? And it's not that it's bad gravy because if you have the ability to put gravy on your, this metaphor is not going places. But. So there's a, there's a, there's a fine line between, I want to do the best to raise the good humans who are attached to me mm-hmm. and opportunity hoarding, which I think is like a scary phenomenon at the upper end of the socioeconomic spectrum where it's like more is better. So I think there's a wobbly area there where like you want the best for your kid and you're going to do everything you can to make sure your kid gets all the supports that he or she needs, it verges into, and then this is where you know more than I do about like, what are all the popular, what are the things that like overstuffed parents are worried about? Like, am I a helicopter parent? Am I a snowplow parent? It's like, then we're in the opportunity hoarding end of the spectrum. It's like, if you're able to do all of those things and you're, you know, I'm at an institution that was one of the institutions where people were paying to get their kid in via Julian Avery methods. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, sure. Yeah, no, lots of like fake tennis players floating around apparently. But like, you know, I mean, that's opportunity. It's like your your kid would have been fine at like USC, but like we need to pay you to get them into Georgetown. No, way. I know. Okay, fine. <laughs> University of Arizona. One kid had the option to like go to University of Arizona and the, the father was like, over my dead body. And it's like, but you're going to college. And like probably if your kid doesn't, can't get into a different college, like that's probably the co- right college for them in that case. Right in terms of meeting their level of interest and like what major do they want and what do they want to study? Like a big state school is a great place to explore those things. That's, you know, let's not get, so I, I think it's just, I think it, I think it's a, it's a good question that you asked and it's a hard question to answer because it's like, if your kid is struggling and not meeting their own potential. And so it's a deeply personal family level equation that you have to solve. It cannot be a, all children need this all children need four to five extracurricular activities, two to three foreign languages, and one to two European trips a year in order to be, you know, reaching their potential, right? Mm-hmm. Children should not have uncomfortable interactions with adults in their lives or, you know, be excluded by peers ever after the ninth grade. Like, that's, those are unreasonable expectations. Like, nobody mm-hmm. needs those, things, right? What does your kid need? Depending on your kid. Like, I think you should absolutely support your child's executive functioning if your child struggles to, you know, get assignments done and feels bad about him or herself. That's not a situation where I would say, well, just because you're not poor, you don't need any executive coaching. Mm-hmm. Like you don't need any intervention. You know, I think if your kid is unhappy, then you have to intervene. And I just think our definition of unhappy should be based on raising good humans and not going festooned or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, but I also think there's an underlying message that gets across when you're doing all these things and signing your kids up for all these things and wanting to support their best selves. There is a message that gets sent, which is our version of success as we define it in this family is associated with getting into Harvard or whatever. And by the way, we're two people who went to, you know, pretty exclusive schools and got PhDs. So I'm not, we're not knocking achievement. Right. No. But I think there's a message that gets put in there in the service of trying to do best, do the best for our kids. And so I think part of, I think I used to argue with you about your 
what I don't think I realized was opportunity hoarding criticism. <laughs> I don't think I realized it either. But I think now I'm moving a little bit more, a little bit closer to you in the sense that I see it, I see some things as opportunity hoarding that are unnecessary. They're just unnecessary. And yeah. I actually don't think that even if even if it was a path to success, we're learning that it's not a path to success because those kids are ending up on the same risk list at the National Academy of Sciences, which is crazy. Oh my gosh, but I will say, I mean, I so I teach intro psychology. I have uh, on average 100 to 110 freshmen. And I often teach the class in the fall, which means I am their first class. Like oftentimes it's, you know, in the morning on the first, you know, it's like readings, welcome to college, young people. Right. Because and of course they're taking psych 101. Oh my God. Psych 101. I get a whole bunch of freshmen. I mean, it's a huge, it's the gateway drug to the major. It's the third most popular major in the college. Like it's a, I see a lot of students and I've done it for seven years now. So what I have, I noticed is that, I mean, the rates of their national surveys backing this up, but my own, you know, observation, the rates of anxiety nationally, including at Georgetown among college freshmen, it's very high. And they're coming off of, I mean, it's vestigial a little bit from applying to college and all the achievement pressures that got them to an elite four-year institution. But, you know, they're so anxious and they're so, they have been the, in some cases, I think, unwilling recipients of opportunity hoarding. Like they've, they've had these things loaded on their backs and they're just ready to crumble. And it's like, that can't be good either. So like read the room, parents, like at one end or the other end of the spectrum, like what does your individual child need? The young people, I learn a lot from them. I, I, I'm, I'm up on all the phrases too. Since I have you and you just said that, I'm gonna have to ask you to give us a little like what it what is what do the young people say? Spill the tea, or is that what old people say? I don't even know. Only old people who think they know what young people say say that. <laughs> you can say something like, "I'm high key interested in whatever, whatever." Oh my god, that was advanced. Okay, I'm high key interested in what. Where what do you want to remind yourself about your kids as you see these freshmen coming in to an elite school? Like, what do you? About what the children that, that I'm parenting? About yeah. your children that you're parenting. My children. Okay. What are the like lessons that you'd give yourself to read the room with these freshmen that are coming in at a high achieving school that clearly like had to have, they couldn't have gotten there sitting on their tushies except for in those occasional <laughs> situations where they bought their admissions. But for the most part, that did not happen. I mean, I feel like, again, like this is, a, your your podcast is so effective in that I feel like there are some phrases that I may have even learned from you. Are you someone who subscribes to like, you know, connect before you correct and like just all the co-regulating stuff? So I feel like that doesn't end when you've got really little kids. And so to me, the emotional distress that I have observed and read about, again, this is a phenomenon across colleges across the country. The emotional distress in incoming college students, I think, is sometimes probably the result of parents not reading the room. And in that case, you know, connecting with their individual child and co-regulating, even as those children are adolescents, even as the children are pushing them away, even as there is this independence, even as the desire to control your child's trajectory because you know better deepens. I think it's still connect before you 
try to correct them, you know, listen to what they want, listen to where their strengths are, their self-perceived strengths matter a lot. Like, what do they think they're good at? What do they think? Wh- what lights their fire? I mean, it's not unimportant to listen to a young preteen or teenager who's telling you verbally or non-verbally or with behavior that's difficult, what they like and what they don't like. And I think that it's when parents overcorrect and don't connect that you see kids in, you know, in uncomfortable situations trying to achieve something that isn't authentic to them and causes distress. That's my, and I'm not a clinical psychologist, so I have to say that's my impression. And so what would I do with my own kids? I would, I would just repeat to myself what I'm trying to do as they are young, when they do something I don't like, or when they throw something at me that isn't what I expected or not what I want. I take a deep breath. It's a skill I'm practicing. I have not mastered it. And I pause and I think, let me hear, what am I here? What am I, what is this behavior telling me? And how can I respond in a way that supports this little person? Read the room. Who are you? What do you need? And you really can see that as you look at these college freshmen coming in tightly wound and feeling the weight of all of that opportunity hoarding. Some of it. And of course, I mean, to be clear, it's not all kids. I know we're generalizing. We're doing the worst thing you can do to a researcher. And to be clear, there are some who come to me and disclose things. And that's really who I'm talking about. And again, I've done this for seven years. I have seen thousands, I would say at this point of college students. The ones who come to talk to me are obviously a select, a self-selecting group. And let me just say, unless you have changed your way of being, you are incredibly intimidating. Like you don't sound it here. And so I think that people might get the wrong impression. <laughs> you should read my rate, my professor. I think people think I'm very accessible, actually. That's what's so a amazing. Lot of joke. But I'm really I'm fun. What I'm sure your rating is off the charts because you're the most incredible, dynamic, brilliant professor and person, but also terrifying. I just think they like to talk to me because they think I, they falsely believe that I'm younger than I am. I think yeah. for college students, either you're like you were younger or you're like one's foot in the grave. Like there's nothing in between. Like they're just like, you don't look dead. So like you're not old. But I'm like, but they, there's no concept. 30s, 40s. They don't have any idea what's happening in there. They don't know. They think I'm like youngish. I'm not an old male person, which is who many of their professors are. And so they're opening up to you. So they feel like I'm like somehow in some zone where they can talk to me. Oh, that is so cool because I felt you were intimidating <laughs> when I was a wee whippersnapper. But yeah, and also they've chosen, and it's a psychology class, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of like we're feeling the feelings generally. But that's so interesting because yeah. I think it's just an important thing to keep in mind. And I, in a direction, I did not think to take this conversation, but now, of course, I want to pick your brain about this another time again, which is really just like how you're seeing that you're seeing the introduction of adulthood in your Mm -hmm. classes at the fall of their freshman year Mm -hmm. when they've just been let out of their nest. That is so mind blowing. It is. It's really interesting. And it does. I mean, it certainly has given me a lot to think about raising my own kids who are still, you know, a good bit away from that transition. But like, just that, you know, there are some pieces of parenting. This goes back to the question you asked earlier. You're like, what is the one thing you would say? I'm like, I don't know. But, you know, there are some pieces of parenting advice that you yourself have been very good about amplifying, which I think are developmentally appropriate all the way across the spectrum. 
And I think pausing, listening, I think those are really important skills that like don't go away. And I think, you know, there's something about like putting your own anxiety on your kid, which we are used to doing when our kids are young, because we have a false sense that we can control them more. So like a kid having a tantrum in a public place is like, why do parents get upset by that? Why do parents become dysregulated? Right. Because it's embarrassing because I imagine fill in the blank, but I imagine is the beginning of that sentence. I imagine other people are judging me. I imagine other people think I'm a bad parent. I imagine the waiters want me to get out of here. I am at whatever, right? It's about you though, right? Your upsetness Mm -hmm. at their behavior is about you. And that is a piece that I think is where we, you know, probably have to pay attention as kids get older. I, I have this total, you know, fabricated scenario in my head that many of my more distressed freshmen are coming from places where they have been, they've received some message from someone that, you know, you need to do this because it has an effect on me. Oh, that's such a good reminder. If you enjoy this episode, don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, and write a little review. And of course, DM me with questions. I really want to take advantage of Anna's knowledge and have her on again when we aren't just catching up on all of these topics. The field of developmental psychology tends to avoid talking in real terms and having access to real parents, not because there isn't a tremendous need, but because it's just not part of the culture of this field. And these are the thinkers and the researchers that have made the information that I want translated to parents so high quality and so incredible. So just a privilege to have her on. 